Hey folks, welcome. It's the Unsung Podcast. I'm Mark. That's Chris. Say hi, Chris. Hiya. How you doing? Uh, I've got my thinking head on, my Twitch. serious face. See, he's got his glasses on. <laughs> I've got fucking glasses on. <laughs> Again? <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think you'd see the day where I podcasted with glasses on? No, I did not. No, no last time I seen it was uh, you were interviewing Eugene Robinson. <laughs> yeah, that that was um, serious, mainly because I, I was going to go blind for some of his part. If you've heard the show, <laughs> I'm sure you'll appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, hopefully people enjoyed that, despite... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully anybody's listening to this. <laughs> It was fun though, it was fun and he seems like a fun guy I'm glad we were able to make it happen as well mm-hmm. um, And we have spent a couple of weeks preparing people for what we're going to do this week Which is a serious podcast Serious We're going to prove business. that we are a broadsheet podcast <laughs> Oh jeez <laughs> We're the Guardian? <laughs> are we the Guardian? I mean we're probably not the Guardian What's a vaguely serious music magazine we're like sound on sound yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we are yeah that's a bit grim we're we going to review some guitar pedals and some some equipment <laughs> oh, man. if people really knew how little i know about guitar pedals <laughs> it would be fucking appalled honestly um but you know the same goes for music and i've bluffed six years of this podcast <laughs> and i'm about to bluff at, at least one more episode we'll yeah, see we'll see uh-huh. um so this is the much touted Playola 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 episode yeah. um, It's nice to have an actual title in advance And they'll be scrabbling about at the last minute Yeah, it? it could could be said that that's probably the best part of this whole episode <laughs> <is> the title <laughs> but. So before we get into that If you want to fund serious quality journalism What is it? What, what is it what is, I wish I could remember verbatim the thing that's in that wee yellow box At the bottom of every Guardian article Well, oh. since you're here <laughs> <laughs> yes. Fund quality journalism <laughs> Uh, yeah, f- you fund it, fund the fuck out of it, man. That's that's, that's podcast specifically. I fund it, I fund it, I fund it right there in the middle. <laughs> Scottish, anybody that's not Scottish won't won't understand that. No, but the ones that are will be laughing twice as hard, so that's okay. Uh, please consider funding quality journalism. Yes, we do just sometimes sit on a couch and blab about records that we like, but other times we spend hour upon hour upon hour researching and writing. I mean, Mark had notes coming into this that were at least twelve. 13,000 words I've probably put that over the 20,000 words yes. uh, I mean it's definitely at novella It's weighty <laughs> stage um, th- There are definitely podcasts and um, that would treat this subject in a very chatty, discursive way and I think we did consider doing that just having some loose themes and, and blethering our way through it and I can see that working but honestly Sometimes there's 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 sort of suggestions and not allegations, but there's things in this that I think require a wee bit of kind of proper, hard and fast research and the odd reference. So mm-hmm. the way that we've gone about it is so that we're presenting you with something that is not just another two blokes on the internet giving their two cents on it and passing it off as some sort of authoritative information. Uh, th- this is researched And actually there's a few things I'm going to say Which went against my intuitions on the subject So yeah, so we have taken this pretty seriously uh, And that's hopefully going to make for an interesting and rewarding listen This will not so. be things sticking out of people's bums <laughs> <laughs> Kind of stuff It won't be okay, We can maybe try to pardon the, pardon the metaphor But we can maybe try and shoehorn that in somewhere <laughs> we could try somewhere. It would be a feat. <laughs> it would certainly be a feat. Um, Sh- Shoehorning feet as well, yeah. man. Jeez. Can I help myself? It's also probably also worth noting that um, this might be quite light on the music, this episode. I'll find a way. Um, Chris will find a way. He's mm-hmm. always, he will always find a way. I feel the way that is right for me. I feel the way 
You know what I've been thinking about doing? I've been thinking about getting one of those sound samples that you cut in whenever there's a surprise or a shot. Goes, <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just start to you use that. that yeah, like they would use the Prince alarm. Yeah. Yeah. That one just there. Uh, whenever we use a Prince alarm, you know, uh, I think we could have something that works in the same fashion. <laughs> it's like, whoa, mic drop kind of moment. Or we could have a mic drop sound. We could. You know, yeah. that sound of a. Like, <laughs> yeah, we might. I mean, we might need that to be fair in this episode. <laughs> We're basically turning into those daytime radio hosts <laughs> that have fart buttons. <laughs> yeah. We could set up. Uh, there's a sampler behind you. I could set up the sampler with eight. Alarms or horns and, and just use them during the show That could become the thing This could be what we'd be missing And then that could be the new merchandising line Is those little key rings Do you remember when you were a kid You get a key yeah, ring and it was like press the button Grenade, yeah. rocket All those kind of things mm. So we could have key rings That were the, the eight samples From Unsung Podcast I, sorry, I'm, I mean, this is... I'm Some merchandise line I'm, I'm here. spitballing here, but it's going to be the funniest part of the show. So probably, Let's yeah, just get probably. it. So a large part of this podcast comes from uh, an experience that I had in the music industry and then subsequently fallen down a big, massive rabbit hole. It, well, I actually watched you tumble deeper and deeper because initially you were like, I might mention this during an episode. Then it was like, there might be an episode here. Then it was like, Chris, I've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the direction of travel, I suppose, for this ep- this episode. Um, but you know what? I was thinking earlier on, I think we actually do one of these types of podcasts perhaps once every year. I think we've yeah. done one like once every year. Yeah, we do. We did Slave to the Algorithm, which there's a wee bit of overlap, which is about Spotify and automated music. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll touch on those mystery playlists, for example, yeah. at one point. We did one on Threaten. Do you remember? Does anybody remember Threaten? <laughs> <laughs> no, not any. <laughs> More, but Threaten's also going to get a mention on this Oh, well, I mean, it, it totally tracks Yeah, 100% absolutely. tracks So um, this is a Nexus episode yeah, of other episodes So let's dive in a little bit then So this episode's called Playola, which is a pay, a play, a pay, a pay, a pay It's called Playola, which is a pay This <laughs> is called Playola I'm going to keep all of that in, that is fucking cool. It's because the words are so similar <laughs> The thing is I listen, made the mistake listen, in my notes as well. that either. Yeah, you made the mistake in your this, notes. You're like, this episode's called Playola, which is a play on Playola. <laughs> you see how it works? Um, but it's a, it's a play on the words Payola. If you don't know what that practice is, we'll get into it in a wee second, but it's kind of still happening in a different form. Yeah, I guess, do you want to start there? Yeah, I mean, so I, I'll be honest, the Playola part of this is the bit that you have been pioneering and you've been away out there in the wild, just like foraging for facts. I do feel alone when I'm researching it. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to be somewhat stepping down into the audience with the listeners for the second part of this episode, but I can certainly get us there because I do know a bit about Payola uh, mm. and that, as you say, is something that's been about for quite a while. I'll, I'll get us through that. There's, I could probably start with a couple of statistics that are going to play a foundational role in this whole mm-hmm. discussion. Mm-hmm. 60,000 tracks are uploaded to Spotify every day. Every single day. 60,000 mm-hmm. tracks of music. Uh, and 20% of those never even get played, yep. apparently. There's actually a website you can go to, which is 
yep. basically based on songs that have never been played and There's it just plays one of those songs. One for YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, videos that have had one hit and it's, it's fucking brilliant. It's really, really good. Um, but how, how the fuck do you fight to the top of that mess? Like 60,000 relatively, not not completely unfiltered, but 60,000 tracks of varying quality. Yeah. Um, it works out like 22 million a year, doesn't it? Something, uh, something like that. Let's assume so. Mm. Or let's break, do a calculation <laughs> and then cut me back in going, yes, Mark, exactly. <laughs> um, but we're going to discuss some of the ways people have tried to climb to the top of that big pile of keek. And Paola is historically one of those. Now, I want to just give a shout out in advance to uh, a YouTube channel that uh, I found really helpful in this. It's called Band Splaining. Mm. Uh, there's two particular videos on mm. that channel that were really, really handy in this. Okay, so I'll probably refer to that quite a bit. Um Piola, the working definition of it is the practice of bribing someone to use their influence to promote a particular product or interest. You may notice that this is basically the foundation of the entire influencer industry. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but Piola differs from advertising due to the explicit knowledge of money changing hands. If not stated, there's a clear understanding of when a product is being paid for. Uh, Piola does not do that. It doesn't have that transparency. Um, why is this harmful? Uh, the thinking goes uh, in Piola, ultimately the main victims are other artists and labels due to the corrosive effect on meritocracy and equality of opportunity. And behind them, you, you have a public being deceived into believing a false idea of a song's popularity, You know, as, as well as that public being subjected to it, mm. <laughs> maybe a lot more than it would otherwise deserve. Yes. Um, the phenomenon has been around in some sense for 150 years. An early example that I found is a guy called Charles K. Harris, uh, who wrote a song called After the Ball. You know, it seems only yesterday that I wrote that old time song of mine, both words and music, of After the Ball. You know, I have a great fondness for that old song, which I composed way back in 1892. Would you like to hear it? Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no baby? Uh, After the Ball was the biggest selling sheet music of all time at one point. It sold two million copies in one year. Bearing in mind that before recorded music, sheet music was how music was sold and it had to be performed. The performance was the advertising and people were like, that's a great bit of music. I'm going to get that. They would buy the sheet music. They'd hear about somebody else that had said, oh, this is a great bit of music. You should get it. And actually the first time people would then hear it would be when they were like physically playing it. They'd be like, oh, this is cool. You know, just following the music, that is the first time they heard it. It wasn't like they heard it on the radio and, you know. So in 1893, this guy Charles K. Harris wrote to an LA theatre explaining how a singer was coming up at the theatre. It was actually, it was like a musical group and there was a singer as part of that group. And he would be singing that song after the ball. And Harris sent in advance $10, which bear in mind, this is like 1893, sent $10 to the theatre and told them the singer is meant to Sing the song four times Pay him 2 for every time he sings it So if he only does it three out of the four Take 2 back And send that money back to me Now that is effectively payola mm. 
mm-hmm. that singer was being paid to sing this four times because of its brilliance and actually was being kind of blackmailed because <laughs> if he didn't do it the theatre was going to withhold some of that cash and it wasn't the only malfeasance in music you know even back then uh, record companies for example used to buy blocks of tickets to cheer wildly after performances of certain songs yeah. obviously influencing the, the, the impressions of surrounding audience members uh, and that actually even led to rival record companies buying blocks of seats and then the audiences cheering and booing in competition it, honestly this be, it became a real rabble it became a real thing the other members of the audience would really quickly figure out what was going on that they were paid for fans sitting on different sides of the theatre ruining the experience for everybody else um, the payola terms sort of started to, to emerge around about that era as regards the name it, it's not very clear there's a lot of different theories on it some have mentioned that it came from the old Victrola the gramophone but who knows you know Crayola there's there's tons of things that end in Ola it was just a common sort of post fix mm-hmm. wasn't it um, but even then uh, prior to World War One, there was a sense of payola sort of souring the health of the music scene because of these things that I'm describing. Uh, so the major music publishers in the US got together and agreed to stop the practice, except they obviously didn't actually stop the practice. They just agreed to. As you can imagine, whoever broke that agreement was kind of at an advantage because the others weren't doing it. Mm-hmm. So effectively, none of them stopped it. <laughs> Thus, it actually began to sort of cycle in and out of fashion um, with one group doing it and it getting a wee bit out of hand and then them agreeing to wind it back. And this led to, you know, legislation and loopholes over time appearing and being subverted and all this different kind like of thing. Like a Cold War almost, eh? Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think it's actually interesting just to pause and have it, like, reflect on the fact that this has been going on forever in popular music, which sort of bursts the nostalgic bubble around the notion of halcyon days. Mm-hmm, you know, totally, when, when yeah. the best music just rose to the surface. And I'm guilty of that. Yeah, you totally. Know, same. Uh-huh. Appeals to the past, you know, that idealised past. Mm. Even we'll talk about things that went on in the 50s and 60s. And it was absolutely filthy, the conduct of the labels and the people behind it. So, yeah, it does kind of make a bit of a mockery of the, the kind of dewy-eyed nostalgia that we sometimes get mm-hmm. for a simpler time. So as as you said, it dates back to fucking time immemorial when it comes to music before before proper recorded music, I suppose, as we know it and understand that term today. Um, but really, I suppose it emerged as a fixture in the music industry at large in the nineteen fifties mm-hmm. uh, with high high vice and uh, his hundred dollar handshake. Yeah, high H Y. It was, it was Hyman. Yeah, Hyman Vice. What a fucking name that is. Eh? <laughs> um, he was the owner of old, old... He spent a lot of money. Do you think he was ever broke? <laughs> hey, here we go. <laughs> he was the owner of Old Town Records in Brooklyn um, and he was he became known in that area for bribing radio DJs with his $100 handshake. Um, so he basically invented the practice of what we now call payola and it was, it was rampant throughout the entire decades until it was outlawed in... <laughs> quote unquote outlawed in 1959 after a congressional investigation can you imagine that happening now? <laughs> yeah, well, well we'll get to that because during that decade we've got some famous examples and one of them is Chuck Berry and Chess Records. Yes, Chess Records yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm. So Chuck Berry's first breakout tune was a track called Maybelline Maybelline Why can't you be true Oh Maybelline Why can't you be true You done started doing the things you used to do 
after Maybelline, the makeup. Like, literally, they needed a name for the track because the track was called something completely different. It was based on an old hillbilly tune, okay. and he'd done this adaptation. Uh, the Chuck Berry story is a long one, but basically, it was in at Chess Records, and they didn't fancy the tune that he thought was going to be the single, but they liked this hillbilly cover that he had that was dead upbeat and stuff. And he was like, "All right, cool." And they were like, "But we can't call it this because this already exists." And there was a box of makeup sitting, and somebody was like, "Why don't we call it Maybelline?" So that became <laughs> the name of the. You know, fictional woman that the song was addressed to And you know that, that track's kind of credited By a lot of people as the start of the rock and roll movement The thing is the sleeve of that single That song, that version of that song At least was written by Chuck Berry But the sleeve had credits for a Mr Alan Freed And a Mr Russ Fratto Oh Alan Freed, yeah, yeah. name is so familiar They were credited as co-writers Freed, who I'm sure we'll talk about Was a DJ who'd played the record uh, And he's the guy, by the way, that some say coined the term Rock and roll um, Fratto was, of all things, a stationery supplier <laughs> Who dealt with Chess Records And what was obvious was that This was payola happening um, Rather than cash payments or bribes Though with the goods, the credits, the songwriting credits Were, were the payola Especially in the case of Freed, who was a DJ Freed, by the way, we should say before we smash him about a bit, did a lot of good things Very for influential. race relations yeah. and black music in America. Mm, very influential. At a time when a lot of DJs were only playing the white versions of black songs, Freed was playing the black artists yeah. and he, he was out and about uh, doing shows and really, really key in promoting the, the careers of a lot of African-American artists. I don't want to bury the lead too much here, but I, I think it is, it is quite a shame, as you'll find out in a wee second, it is a shame that his legacy is sullied by the, the practice of Paola because in another era if he wasn't involved with that he would definitely still be held up as being somebody that was a figurehead and a really important influential person that helped basically make rock and roll a white thing yeah it's not a white thing but you know know what I'm saying yeah I mean I think in a similar way though there's no denying that Chess Records even back then were engaging in Paola which we've kind of more or less come to frown upon but Devil's advocates would probably say that they did what it took to compete at a time when the music they were putting out was barred from mainstream yeah, success. It does I mean, make sense. Chess records were putting out African American artists when no other record, well, a couple were, Atlantic were, and you know, but those labels who probably all did the same thing. It's Jim Crow, isn't it? Yeah, so. th- I mean, they were not allowed to do that. It was seriously frowned upon, and these artists had no opportunities until these labels started pulling every trick out their bag to try and get them some success, and it worked. There were huge social prejudices as well as, you know, facets of big business that were against them and they managed to to navigate those. And yeah, it you know, it took this, but there's a utilitarian sort of pragmatic perspective in this that I think uh, just to give the game away, I'm going to end up referring to close at the end of this show as well, where it, it kind of rears its head a bit again in another genre of music. I mean, it's hindsight as well, though. Right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Like, it's at the time they wouldn't have thought. They would have thought it probably exactly what you what you said there. They would have been thinking about this idea of like, well, we need to do something to get this great music out there and get ahead because all the forces that make this record business work are aligned against us, and also we're prejudiced against because of our race as well. How are we going to make this work? You know, and at the time they would not have thought about it as being, oh, this is really dodgy. But then obviously stuff happens to make it a dodgy practice. But I don't think they would have seen that at the time. Yeah, so despite all of that, all that I've said there, um, this practice was quite rampant throughout the 50s. It was outlawed in 1959. I did hint earlier on to this congressional oversight hearing um, yeah. which happened in the US because basically what had happened is there was a closed session of it which investigated a TV show host Dick Clark, a DJ. 
Yeah, well, the thing is, I don't, uh, this is in the context, uh, I'm not sure how many people know about this, but there was a huge quiz show scandal in the 50s in America where it turned out that the quiz shows were being fixed and the Congressional Committee got involved in that and it was seen as being a big success and I think they were kind of pretty proud of themselves. Mm. So they decided, oh, we can actually fix sort of wider social problems as well and so they decided to have a look at this subject and as you're saying um, these these laws were signed uh, ratified by uh, Dwight Eisenhower yeah so Dick Clark was involved in that and so was Alan Freed Alan Moondog Freed alongside 300 other DJs who had admitted to have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes this in the 50s in the 50s Uh, there's a case of a DJ in uh, Chicago do- uh, I was going to say doctor DJ Phil Lind who'd, who'd admitted to taking $22,000 to play one track that one was in track. that was in 1950 whatever that is fucking wild that's the equivalent to $278,522 in today's money so the scale of it was staggering that is millions and millions of dollars in today's money at the end, you know, at the end of it, Dick Clark managed to walk away relatively unscathed. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still seen as being a national treasure at the time. And, you know... Uh, uh, yeah, his uh, legacy yeah, didn't suffer the same damage. Yeah, as but Alan Freed. Moondogfried, obviously, like I said, clearly a hugely influential figure in, in the development of rock and roll and of black artists. But his legacy is completely sullied because he was involved in this. And not just involved in it, but was made a figurehead or like a, or somebody to a scapegoat. He was made a scapegoat, basically. Alongside all these other DJs But he was like the the I guess he was yeah. so famous he 300 became, other DJs yeah. And he's the one we remember Yeah um, It kind of crossed the pond To the UK as well In 1960 The FCC They outlawed payola in America Sort of The language And the ruling Sort of states That under the table Payments were outlawed And the stations Had to disclose If uh, plays had been purchased That's interesting language And we will get back yeah, to that yeah. So you could still pay or plays, but you had to declare it. To declare it, yeah. Which, let me tell you, spoiler alert, <laughs> people do declare it and it does fucking work. Um, <laughs> but in 1964, the UK government kind of followed suit and outlawed the practice too because there was a series of articles in the NME. Back when the NME was an actual yeah. fucking journalistic thing. Can you fucking believe Like, that absolutely blew my mind. I was like, wow. And the, the, bear in mind that the, the enemy came out in the 50s, which alone was like, wow. But the enemy was out there doggedly doing this work and influencing <laughs> policy. Yeah, can you imagine that? That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, just what? Yeah. Uh, they basically exposed that there were record labels paying DJs and producers to play their songs on popular radio shows, such as Radio Luxembourg and the BBC Light programme. Does that even exist anymore? No, what, what I, even I've is never that? heard of that. Yeah. Um, so the inquiry found that Piola was also quite widespread in the UK, and the inquiry led to the creation of the Independent Broadcast Authority, which was responsible for regulation of commercial radio in the UK uh, and I'm not entirely sure if that had the same language in it as the, the FCC ruling in America but I know people that work at radio stations big radio stations who works for a conglomerate and and has worked for conglomerates throughout his career and he was like well there's a reason all the charts play the same music all the time mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely going to get a mention Now, one of the reasons that there was so much negativity towards it when, as we said, there are other things that seem quite parallel to Paola that aren't so heavily frowned upon, is that Paola was quite quickly seized upon uh, by organised crime. It was seen as an opportunity to... Wash money? Wash wash money, which still goes on, but also enforcing certain aspects of it. Organised crime would be brought into the fold, and we'll actually we'll, I'll, I'll illustrate that when we mention one particular guy from the eighties. Uh, but I want to run through a, a couple of famous scenarios of of Paola to show it 
really spanning the decades ever since, okay? So, in the 1970s, there was a thing called the CBS scandal. CBS News, now this is really, <laughs> this is kind of blew my mind as well, much in the same way as the NME thing. So, CBS News broke the story about CBS Records <laughs> <laughs> in 1974. Same company, but that is the independence. It's of like it. when the BBC like report on some presenters stuff, but you, know you get I mean? the feeling they don't have a choice <laughs> CBS News you can you know you can imagine one of these gritty 70s dramas where they're like but bud are you sure you want to do this <laughs> <laughs> tell them to sit in it um, but uh, yeah so it turned out that CBS Records had spent half a million over a two year period and it seems likely that this was on artists possibly including Fleetwood Mac Chicago Aretha Franklin Household names. This was something they'd still been doing. Um, in 1977, there's a sort of fairly well-known example of a promoter in uh, Washington DC who said that when he booked the band Earth, Wind and Fire, the local DJs, a number of them, had threatened to stop playing the band unless they were paid at 14 grand. It was like an active blackmail thing by the local DJs who saw the opportunities and then this same thing repeated it happened again with later bookings and uh, in the later bookings the DJs would ask for things like oh well we, we don't want money but we want box office shares so they, they wanted a percentage of things so already it was taking different forms you know people were working away around it in the 1980s NBC and Joe Isgro let's talk about these Joe two Isgro, yeah. um, the practice again started to to modernise and it moved on to utilise proxies so rather than the labels themselves like CBS Records maybe maybe learning from that example rather than them getting their hands dirty they used or set up at times intermediaries to distance themselves from the from the transactions so radio promoters being the most obvious independent example. promoters independent promoters yeah uh, at one point 8 million a year was spent on these independent promoters in the US for, for their services and this money often went to companies with mafia links via a need for enforcers because the promoters carved up the US into territories, they carved up states and they carved up the country and they, they would use hired muscle and threats to secure their monopoly over these markets and one really good example of that is a, a whistleblower DJ called Don Cox who once gave a notorious bean spilling TV interview describing how this all worked including the use of drugs rather than money or percentages. You take this ounce and go on home of cocaine. You know, we can get more, you take this. And I'll give you a call Tuesday. And what happens Tuesday? They call you and go, how was that? By the way, I got this record I want you to hear. Um, and three days after his interview, he disappeared. And people feared he was dead. Uh, he actually resurfaced five days after that. He, he made a phone call to people who were looking for him. He couldn't and, walk because his kneecaps were broken. Uh, yeah, he was in hospital. <laughs> having, having been severely beaten up by three armed guys. I who, wish I hadn't said that now. <laughs> <laughs> who, you've seen enough movies. Uh, they'd intercepted him as he left his radio station. Fucking hell, man. Uh, which is to illustrate where the organised crime thing comes in. They needed people to, uh, to show how serious they were. A, a guy called Don McGee who was quite successful at the time said these promoters and Piola played a particularly big role for example in Bon Jovi's early success Now 
Now, I do want to make very clear, we're not suggesting that the artists sanctioned these payments. These are done on their, inverted commas, behalf by record labels and radio promoters and stuff. And agents. And, and agents, yeah. Now, that's not to say the artists don't benefit from them hugely at times, although I'm sure there's others that have probably suffered from them, as we'll mention. One Famous American example of this, though, involved a character called Joe Isgro, a colourful character, shall we say. He was a key radio promoter in the 1980s for people like Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. Uh, his company was taking in a reported $10 million a year at the time. NBC broke the payola story in 1986, naming uh, Joe Isgro, and he was indicted in 1989. He faced multiple racketeering charges, loan sharking, and he, he confessed to shakedowns of people in like the Beverly Hills area. Some of the people indicted alongside him actually pled guilty, but his case was thrown out by the judge the next year due to the prosecution withholding evidence from the defence. The prosecutors actually spent six years trying to revive the case until the lead prosecutor was himself caught taking 166 <laughs> grand from felons and informants. She's bribery. Fucking hell, Wild. man. Yeah. And the thing is, none of those figures that we've just mentioned, none of those 80s figures were ever convicted on payola charges. So whilst it was illegal, whilst there were laws against it, it wasn't really leading to much in the way of jail time or, or penalties for people. Yeah. Can I add a wee addendum there to your 80s story? Yeah. So in 1986, uh, Walter Yetkinov, the then CEO of CBS Records, admitted that he'd paid over $200,000 to promote Michael Jackson's early pop hits on the radio. Mm-hmm. And nothing happened to him, but you know. So yeah, even the biggest artists, like you said, it makes sense from like if 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 you're a major label on an industrial level, on a purely mathematical industrial and business level, it makes sense because you want to see a return on investment. The best way of doing that. And this era is to sell records and take the biggest cut of the profits. I love any opportunity to tear down famous people <laughs> and strip away the joy from our listeners. They're like, ah, oh, but like you said, they wouldn't have known though. Like they, they were probably quite unaware of no, that. No, but it's know? also part of why they are famous. Yeah, part, part of part of the story. We can we can disagree over how big a part, but part of it's part of the narrative. If, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now talking of classic classic musical acts like the. But best of the best Cream of the, top, cream of the, cream the crop, crop yeah. 1997 The record label Interscope <laughs> and, and the The group Limp Bizkit um, This caused I would say Mild controversy um, Mark do you want to Explain what happened Yeah so um, Anybody who's of a certain age uh, Will remember the song Counterfeit <laughs> Um, yeah, the the first, the first it, single well, was it the first single or was it the George Michael cover? They came out quite close together, so because they were on the same album. Yeah, um, I so I'm not sure, but I, I, you know, I have a funny feeling that maybe that George Michael cover. What, what's the fucking name of that song again? Faith. Faith mm-hmm. came out and then was re-released, perhaps either side of Counterfeit. Anyway, regardless, Counterfeit was a big song from the first Limp Bizkit album. Yeah, so. Interscope openly paid a radio station in Portland, Oregon to play Kerner's Fit on their station for five weeks straight. And they even said before the song was played that it was presented by Interscope. And their manager told MTV, oh, shall I read the quote? Yeah, do it. Piola was about DJs defrauding the owners of their stations and potentially hurting, rating, and potentially hurting ratings by not making musical decisions. Then the FCC required people to say that a spin was being paid for, so the fraud element was taken out of it. 
by us saying that this is brought to you by Interscope, you know the money is going to the station, and the stations, if the stations want to make bad decisions, then the ratings will go down. Now, I've got quite an interesting fact to add to this, right? Mm-hmm. So, when I was doing the, when I was doing the research for this podcast, I read a really good book that's not about it's not really about Spotify, it's not really about Piola, but it, it gives good context. It's called How Music Got Free by Stephen Witt, and he talks about the the demise of the record industry, why piracy became a thing how it became a thing and it ends when streaming services launched basically. Interscope at the time was run by a guy called Doug Morris who's now seen as being one of the most successful record executives in the history of the music business, right? And in that book he talks about how Doug was so good at his job because he wasn't looking at the record sales for artists, he was actually looking at radio plays in specific areas like Portland, Oregon and seeing which artists were getting the bump and then he was using that to kind of inform who to sign, mm-hmm. which led to him signing people like Eminem and 50 Cent and Dr. Dre and, and, and all that throughout the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s as well. And Limp Biscuit was one of the acts he signed to Interscope Records. So it's quite interesting that those two things are combined because clearly he'd seen that they were moving something somewhere and then went, oh, these guys are probably going to be quite good. They've got a current sound and then put all these machinations in motion to make this happen. Yeah, that's interesting. I think one thing to really reinforce in people's minds here as well, and it's it's made clear by what the Interscope executive said, one of the issues with Paola for radio DJs is that it was happening under the table. The companies weren't getting a cut of it. The DJs were lining their own pockets, sometimes to just fantastic extents. You know, just yeah. 100, 300 a track, and you consider how many songs are getting played on a radio show every single day. These people were making an absolute fortune. And you see in some of the kind of more candid discussions of it, they're just like, it was the Wild West. We were so rich. You just get everything. You got drugs, you got money. People were bringing girls to your house as part of, like, like prostitutes as part of these payments. I mean, these guys were living the high life big, big time. And they were key pivotal figures in the industry. You jump forward a bit, beyond the Limp Bizkit thing, you get to 2005, and there was a scandal then as well. It involved a, a, an American figure called Elliot Spitzer that we'll, we'll talk about. You know, 2005, radio was still pretty huge at that point, even though things were changing. Because I think we've, we've talked about 2003 being that big inflection point for band revenue, where sales started to tank. We'll talk about that later on as well. <laughs> Exponentially. Um, as I say, radio was huge. Despite past prosecutions, people were still willing to risk being caught to push and break acts, you know, that would include, and this is where it gets really interesting, Nine Inch Nails, Blink-182, Beyonce, R.E.M., Gorillaz, Blur, Pearl Jam, Nora Jones, Train, John Mayer... And then even stuff like Mars Volta, they used Jimmy Eat World. They are all proven people. They are that there are receipts showing mm-hmm. that these bands had someday on their behalf, not at, at their behest, but some me- person at their label or their promotions team going out there and paying for them to get on the radio. For example, $4,000 was spent on getting the band Franz Ferdinand added to one station in the in the US. Show, 
17,000 was spent in one week boosting Good Charlotte plays by Sony. They actually only got 250 plays for that $17,000. Well deserved. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that band are actually one of the most frequent benefactors of, of these schemes. You see, That their, does not surprise you me. You see their names a yeah. lot in the paperwork. I mean, back in the day, man, I, I knew those people really liked them, but I was like, there's something not right about that band. And this, this is the thing, so there are bands in that list, you know, like Beyonce's and Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. You're like, why do they need to do it? They're already famous. Nine Inch Nails makes sense because their stars probably, his stars probably going down at that point. Well, that's a very key aspect to you it. Know? Some of it is when bands are starting to wane. Mm. Some of it is because the entire image of the band is big numbers and prominence. And if they're not getting that, it has to be reinforced. But yeah, Good Charlotte appeared in this a lot. They were clearly being very heavily pushed to stay relevant. Uh, one station director actually in writing in these in emails that were released admits hating them but he actually agreed to give them heavy overnight plays for two weeks just to influence the charts even if there wasn't actually an audience listening they would climb up the play charts because of that uh, in exchange for five grand yeah, yeah. yeah and here's here's a Bobby Dazzler this will make your eyes water $300,000 was spent on one single for the band Dream the girl group Dream Uh, and the fact that we don't know who the fuck that is <laughs> I was just going to say The fact that? that they bombed Underlines how shite the labels were Both at choosing acts And at the scam mm. They weren't good at it They were throwing money at these these groups Trying to make them work And this is at a time when money was really starting to run out For yeah, labels already I mean that's like The record industry at this point is In the mid 2000s is, is just fucking scorched earth Piracy had completely ruined it Completely fucking All the profits were just in the fucking gutter Sticking to those old school tactics Is, is going to be like fucking And I'm going to say it Because it probably was It's going to be old white men At the top of businesses Going We need to do it We need to, we need to pay the radio stations And so everybody else is going It doesn't really matter anymore But yeah. they're like You need to do it anyway Because we need, we need to get our money back On this act You know Yeah floundering Just, just like mm-hmm. Reaching for the same weapon Over and over again Yeah So Elliot Spitzer Elliot Spitzer was the Uh New York Attorney General and a very, very popular guy. There's all these stories about Elliot Spitzer, you know, walking at his house, you know, high-fiving people on his way down the street. <laughs> Seriously. That happens to me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was like a fucking Truman Show. And just like, like really popular guy uh, in New York. He would get loads of tip-offs from the community. You know, people would literally, because they trusted him, volunteer stuff to Elliot Spitzer. He seemed like he was a good guy on their side. He did later leave his position in disgrace <laughs> due to his uh, appetite for executive prostitutes. Um, he he was a guy who was hotly tipped for office, actually. He was really? so popular. Wow. Yeah, yeah, but uh, his habits uh, undermined that. Anyway, in 2004, he subpoenaed the big four record companies of the time and then later released 300 plus pages of those emails that were given to him to the public Mm. Uh, and those emails are fascinating just a couple of highlights uh, a quote from one if your station accumulates 60 spins of X song we will fly a station member and one guest to any X band's show 60 60 60 60 yeah and they will fly two people to any concert by that band in the United States Uh, another one uh 
What do I have to do to get Audio Slave on WKSS this week? <laughs> Whatever you can dream up, I can make it happen. Wow, an actual quote from an email trying to get Audio Slave played. Um, <laughs> here's another case study here. So Epic Records paid for Pearl Jam's album Riot Act due to the poor uptake of the record. Now, this is what we were saying about bands that are huge, but they're kind of starting... No to, longer relevant. They're, or they're at least plateauing, shall mm. we say. We'll be kind, right? So 250 grand was spent just on Paola for that Riot Act album by Pearl Jam. much money like the record the, the recording of the record alone was probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollars but the marketing campaign must have been in the millions yeah but they're an arena rock band so that's one two concerts yeah I guess that, you know mm. uh, but they've got to keep them there to, to make them mm-hmm. worth that and that's part of the problem is it's like if they're starting to drop off the radar those arena shows might not be selling out yeah. anyway so what they actually did for one thing was they cancelled a big arena show in, in favour of doing a much smaller gig at Orlando's House of Blues specifically so that radio stations could send competition winners to it like basically in return for like six weeks of heavy rotation on those stations it, it didn't go that well though so that's, that's, sure. that's shooting yourself in the foot man well here's the thing right so KROK Croc only played the track six times but they were given a hundred tickets for six plays of that song And the the actual person behind the, the scheme Said in an email uh, I am regretting talking the band into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, You're losing like a million dollars In cancelling the show And then you need to pay the band For playing the other show And you've already like Chucked away all this money in Piola And the record label's like Where's all the fucking money going? So there's actually That show I think was from 2000 And was it? Three, four And there's a video of that show. You can see Pearl Jam playing that Orlando House of Blues show. It'll be easy to find it online. It's just fascinating to think that the people that are in that audience are there as a result of the scam across all these different radio stations. Now, he says, I am regretting talking the band into it. Pearl Jam are kind of generally seen as being a very ethical group, you know, refusing to work with Ticketmaster and all that kind of stuff. He says he talked them into it. I, I would tend to think that Pearl Jam were simply convinced to do a small show for probably, competition yeah, probably. winners. Mm-hmm. Not that they knew about the payola side of it. Because they're a band that passed up the chance to make a lot of money working with Live Nation and Ticketmaster. So I find it hard to envisage that they would then do something as stupid as this. Um, Universal, I mean, the, the Epic weren't the only people at it. Universal were caught... Uh, paying a team of people to call radio stations across the country to request a song Where the Hood At by DMX. So in total, they made more than 10,000 calls to request that song. It cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And this tactic was actually used for a number of acts, but the caller demographics had to be very specific. So again, from the emails, for example, Ashanti, the callers had to be female, black, 18 to 24 only. Nora Jones songs, it had to be women between 20 and 28. And Brie Larson, get this, it had to be 11 to 13 year old girls. That's great, isn't it? But here's the, you're, you're paying 11 to 13 year old girls to call radio stations. Is that not child labour? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, that's, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because that's exactly how you target in social media. Yeah. It's exactly how you do it. It is. It's a very rudimentary version of that, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? but it's fine now. Actually, an independent label called TSR Records in the States sued the majors after all of this emerged, alleging that they had, uh, quote, created a cartel that prevented smaller labels accessing radio play fairly. Another quote, they were shut out of radio stations due to improper conduct by bigger labels. Mm. It was eventually settled out of court with Sony, uh, but part of the settlement was a gagging order on what came out during the trial so that the three people that ran TSR, which was an independent label, weren't allowed to talk about the other things they'd learned during that, that trial. Um, but I'm actually surprised, given that, they, that it settled, that there weren't more uh, lawsuits. And I think all of this all of this is interesting as it highlights that artists who seem you know, ubiquitous and effortlessly huge are actually largely kept there by an army of operators and a whole load of manipulation of perception. It's all marketing, man. It's all marketing. This is the complete mindfuckery of the illusion of choice laid bare. You know, that, that whole thing that's very easily illustrated like when you used to walk into a Virgin Megastore or an HMV and there'd be big facings of records in front of you because they were paid for, paid for. Mm-hmm. to be there and it was the illusion of choice. It's like, oh, look, you can pick from 50 records this week, you know, 5,000 records came out, but mm-hmm. we're giving you the choice of picking from 50, and therefore the charts represent public tastes. Well, the charts only represent public tastes within very narrow boundaries. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of another example of that. You're just seeing a democratic process of tracks being played in the radio, but it's only democratic within a very, very narrow range, mm-hmm. and it's very heavily influenced. Anyway... After that entire fiasco took place, nearly 30 million in settlements was paid to the state of New York, which the state of New York then paid on to charities. Um, But, for example, the fine that Universal paid, which I think might have been 12 million from memory, only represented 0.2% of their revenue that year. That's, yeah. I'm just going back at my memory now of that book I mentioned earlier on. I think Doug Morris might have been the CEO of Universal Records in that period. The reason he got really good at his job is because he he seen he basically saw music promotion of these artists as like a as like a, a simple equation, column A and column B. Column A is the number of artists I have, and column B is the amount of money I have. And the reason that he was always able to make money every single year is because column A was getting smaller. He was signing less and less artists and using that smaller and smaller pot to promote the artists. So he was only keeping on the ones that he knew he could convert. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just a last couple of examples. Here's a fun one that you'll relate to, Mark. Uh, Killer Mike, his single Adidas. Sixty-five. 
the DJs were sent one very expensive new Adidas sneaker <laughs> and after they played the song 10 times they were sent the other shoe <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of genius but also horrible yeah it's genius Piola it's, yeah. it's Piola with a sense of humour yeah. but there you go and uh just to underline that this is very much an ongoing thing. Like as we said, this has been reiterating throughout the decades. In 2020, Rolling Stone magazine published a, a really good article, actually, and it included the texts of a guy called Steve Zapp. Now, I, I first want to disambiguate here. <laughs> as implausible as it sounds, there are two Steve Zapps <laughs> in, in popular music, right? There's Steve Zapp with one P and Steve Zapp with two P's. Ah, okay. Right? Actually, Easy to get them mixed I've up. dealt with Steve Zapp with two P's, so I was a little bit horrified when I first read this. <laughs> he, uh, amongst other things, works for International Talent Booking ITB and he deals with bands like Blood Red Shoes, Sleep, Editors, Biffy Clyro, or he did at one point anyway. Uh, he's also the guy that helped start The Fly magazine, which for anybody oh. that's of a certain age was the free magazine, music magazine used to get that was associated with the Barfly chain. Mm-hmm. Right? This is not that Steve Zap. Not that guy. Steve Zap, I have no idea what, what he's been up to, but uh, <laughs> not this. Not this guy. <laughs> um, so Steve Zap with one P. Steve Zapp with one P is the Paola guy and he was a radio promoter at Virgin MCA and Warner he also started Z Entertainment uh, and Z Entertainment Records in LA and then he started Artbeats with a writer producer called Gino Barletta and basically Artbeats was trying to write pop songs and break young artists um Rolling Stone ran this story on leaked texts, which showed very clearly that Piola was still alive and well even even then. Uh, I think Steve Zapp was copying almost 300 grand to a West Coast station. And he kind of gave the game away by saying things in the texts, I'd be telling colleagues not to take certain calls or play certain tracks as, quote, they don't pay me shit. The scandal involved acts uh, including Dua Lipa, Ellie Goulding, Panic at the Disco, Five Seconds of Summer, Sean Mendes, our favourite... Ed Sheeran all wrapped up in this and one of the most amazing parts of this was and this is also the case somewhat previously but I'd never heard it quite so explicitly it wasn't just boosting their acts it was actually pulling back the other acts so part of these requests wouldn't necessarily be like play Sean Mendes' single more right because at one point Sean Mendes I think was 8 in the charts right and there were like a couple of really big acts above him what they requested was play these two tracks less and then you know as it would have it Sean Mendes ended up at number one the next week So what's that de-pushing pulling? Yeah. In record and in, in wrestling terms that'd be a de-push. A de-push. Yeah. De-pushing some acts. Yeah. Love a wee wrestling drop, don't yeah. we? It's quite funny that, isn't it? Because it's it's not Piola if you're telling them to not do something, right? <laughs> it's not we're not we're not we're not greasing the wheels by saying you need to play this act. We're paying you to not play the act, so technically it's not Piola. <laughs> there must be another term for it though. It's still pretty nefarious, isn't Definitely. it? Definitely. I mean I mean, imagine how I mean it's even more nefarious if you're the other act. I mean, they are pure raging about that. Ah uh, yeah, I can imagine. And he's one of those indie promoters we talk up we spoke about earlier on. Not indie as in, you know, I guess when you put on bands. We're indie promoters, but independent promoters who have a caveat in that FCC law we spoke about spoke about a way back earlier on in the episode. Whereas independent promoters are allowed to work uh, with radio stations uh, as long as they disclose the incentives. Yeah, 
And sometimes he would, these things would even pop up on invoices, not for like, it wouldn't be like, here's like 50 grand for not playing a song. It's like, here's a thousand grand in water bottles and 800 grand in, yeah. in you know, whatever, 800 pound and whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, those, those receipts actually came out as well in that New York trial and you see the, the, the euphemisms for the various payments. Yeah. And um, they never exist. Those things don't exist. It's just to make it look good for the, for the accountants, you know? Uh, see what I think is really interesting about that de-pushing phenomenon, you know, the, the tug of war that's taken place there it's actually harkening way back to the to the music halls and one crowd's cheering and then one crowd is paid to boo mm-hmm. that act and then they're cheering their act meanwhile the other crowd boos their act it, it's the same phenomenon yeah it's, it all comes back around doesn't it? it it's not really a surprise is it that it's still happening today I mean, should we be surprised about that? No. And, uh, radio uh, started fading in relevance uh, in the late 2000s when Vivo became a thing. Do you remember Vivo? It's, uh, it's, it's a, like a video a, channel. Yes, a video channel. So that's, yeah. that, that was so... Back to Doug Morris again. Again, I'm just coming right out of my brain. So I've not written this down. It's just ambient knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> that's a new phrase. Yeah, that's ambient knowledge. Um, so the story in the book is really interesting, right? Um, by this point, he's in his late 60s, right? And he, he goes to his grandson's house and he goes to sit down with his grandson. He talks to his grandson. How do you listen to new music these days? He goes, I just listen to it on YouTube. I just, I just, he's like, show me. He just sits him down at the computer. And Doug Morris had, had grown a reputation for being quite technophobic. And he was one of the first people Steve Jobs called when it came to launching iTunes. And he said, no, it but he ended up funneling millions of dollars into, street, uh, into services like iTunes that sold digital music that all failed. Mm. All the major labels did that. Apple were the only one that got it right. So he was like, I don't believe in selling music digitally because it just leads to... Because pir- we're doing this because of piracy and it just leads to more piracy. But he's like, I'm losing so much fucking money here. <laughs> we're all losing so much fucking money here. So what do we do? When he seen his, his grandson playing one of his acts, a hip-hop act that would have been on YouTube, he was like, the light bulb went off I fucking got it boys I know what I'm going to do All the music videos For all the artists Were uploaded online Just by random people right um, He started Vivo Right And basically The thing that happens to us Every single time you put a video On YouTube right Is we get demonetized, We get a copyright strike Whenever we play it about music which is why we can't make any money off of YouTube right YouTube pulled off Every single video That was not done Officially by the artist And put out on Vivo and that's how they started to make money in the early 2000s and early, in the early 2010s because they were now making their money through YouTube, YouTube and streaming and then he started writing in their contracts that that'd be part of the royalties, part of the deal that they get. So radio was fading in relevance, right? It was just dying away. Vivo stepped in to kind of fill up this kind of liminal space, I guess, between the death of the physical media and the MP3s and stuff were burgeoning. They, they were, their, their growth was huge, but they weren't as big as they should have been because, you know, an iPod can hold 10,000 tracks and each track costs like a pound and nobody's buying 10,000 pounds worth of music. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're downloading most of probably 25,000 pounds worth of music and maybe paying for like 15, 20, you know? So Spotify Spotify exists, and we'll talk a little bit more a little bit more about Spotify in the next episode. But the reason I'm saying all that is because it, it kind of comes to how Payola, or as we're now calling it, Playola, still exists. Since Spotify launched its Discovery Weekly feature in 2015, um, it started to put an emphasis on both user-generated playlists and algorithmic playlists. And radio, like I said, whose relevance was kind of slowly fading, was finally taken out the back and shot, basically. <laughs> 
playlist became a more important factor in breaking new artists than radio ever had. Somehow, in the early 2010s, they'd figured it out, right? All those old guys who were making people phone up radio stations and, requ- and make kids listen and request B. Larson songs um, had realised that, you know what, there's actually an easy way of doing this, and it's by using the playlist features on the biggest music platform in the world. And it's not even for new artists. A lot of the a lot of the most popular playlists are actually by established artists. You know, you've seen them all the time. It's the, this uh, this is playlist. So, like for example, this is Bon Jovi, right? Yeah. With Spotify, you'll see that. So now it's all about playlists. They've kind of consigned radio to the dustbin of history, to use a really overwrought cliche there. Um, so there's an entire two, if not three, generations of people that now use them to legislate fine music. So what we're going to tell you in the next episode then is how that practice of payola has changed. What have I told you that now operates in a completely different guise? Would you believe me? It's com- I would believe you. It's completely unregulated. Given that we've got 150 yeah. years of history of it slowly metamorphos- slowly metamorphosing... Yeah, metamorphosis, metamorphosing, yeah, uh-huh. Resizing? Yeah. Metamorphosizing. <laughs> of it slowly adapting mm-hmm. uh, to its environment and changing form, and I would find it completely plausible that yeah. it found a way to the surface again mm-hmm. in the digital age. It maybe took it a wee while to get its bearings, but yeah, absolutely. And this you guys is completely unregulated, and it's so rapacious and so soulless that it makes all those backhanders for way back in the day pale in comparison to the yeah. reach, the sheer reach Maybe not monetary wise, but actually we'll talk about it in the next episode, but I kind of don't think you need to pay as much money, anywhere near as much money as people were having to yeah. give to radio DJs. It's like anything, you know, the, the older versions were cruder and the, the, the technology uh, has become more refined and therefore the methods have become more refined. Yeah, absolutely. So we will pause for thought there and we'll return for part two. And in part two, I think especially if you're a musician you're going to find it fascinating. Now, hopefully, in part one, if you're just a consumer of music, you were sitting there jaw agape as you realised that everything you liked was chosen for you by some guy in LA with coke still crusted around his yeah. nostril. Um, I mean, it's not getting better. It's not getting better. It, it's just amazing <laughs> how much our free will in this matter is influenced. Um, and I think that's certainly going to continue in, in part two. But we much newer technology in a much more surreptitious ways mm. so join us for that Mark any other things you want to tell us to ruin our week um, no but I would like to ask something of you I'm not going to pay you money for it though unfortunately alright um, shout us out on your on your social platform of choice please if you're enjoying this episode or any other episode just give us a like give us a share and if you're really feeling super generous maybe a review on Apple Podcasts, something like that. <laughs> but you should, this yeah. is the point where you should have done the yellow box and been like, since you're here. Since you're here. <laughs> yeah, since you're here. <laughs> since you've made it this far. If you want to uh, fund quality journalism, then go to Patreon, subscribe to Unsung Pod, go to our merch page, get something off the merch page, because that, that goes into the pod as well. Or if you're a, a tight ass, then at least give us a tag. That doesn't cost you anything mm. apart from your time. And you're wasting that anyway because you listen to our show. Yeah. So how valuable can it be? So if, if you're doing the dishes right now, stop, pick up your phone and do at least one of those no, things. No, because my hands are wet, I'll do it later and then I'll forget. Oh, fuck you. Fucking dry them. Fuck you and fuck your dishes. <laughs> right, see you next week. Bye.